architecture this is our third episode um, we apologize for the second episode we recorded it at a club down in old soho where you drink champagne and it tastes just like cherry cola c-o-l-a cola just kidding there were kinks in last week's um episode so unfortunately we're going to re-record that at a future date and uh episode two will be out of order at any rate diving right in Music news for this week, uh, Toto has reformed, which is big news for you and I, because both big fans, um, uh, to get ready for their Dogs of Oz tour. Uh, Steve Lukather and Joe Williams have put together a new lineup, um, as David Page and Steve Porcaro, their two keyboardists, have both opted to retire from touring. So, a brand new group, and uh, still with the same foundation, same cornerstones of should be an interesting tour. I'm I'm actually really excited about it. Um, I saw an interview with Steve Porcaro recently where he said that he would never say n- never to recording again or uh, touring again, but he only wants to do like one-offs and things like that. So yeah. I, th- I think that's, I mean, this is, I missed their last one and I was very, very upset to have missed that. So I'm excited for this one for sure. I'm uh, hopefully they come near near Colorado Springs, probably Denver, I'm guessing. But that would be yeah. great. Oh, absolutely. And um, no no offense to Shannon Forrest. He seemed like a nice enough guy, but I was really disappointed that they lost out on Keith Carlock, that uh, Donald Fagan was able to lure him back um, and Toto missed out. I mean, he recorded the drums for Toto 14, did a few dates with him in uh, Asia, I believe, and then he was gone back to uh, the Donald Fagan band, which with Walter Becker gone, it's no longer really Steely Dan, but right. um, I, their, their new drummer, Spup, I saw some clips of him. He is phenomenal. I, I was really wowed by his drumming. Yeah, I'm excited for this for this whole thing, and I mean, I like I like uh, Donald Fagan's band too. So you know, either way, I think people are are going to get a show. Um, but I I think the lineup that I saw that they announced on uh, Twitter or Instagram. Um, it, it's, it looks real solid. Um, I think it's going to be good. I'm also really excited. I'm I, one of the guys on there is from the Ringo star, all star, uh, Ringo star. Yeah. All star band. And, yeah. and I remember seeing him sing um, Africa with Steve Lukather in one of the videos. Um, so oh, I know, wow. I know he can sing. I'm really interested to see Steve Lukather. If he actually sings David Page's parts in, um, Africa. I don't know why it's one of those weird things that I'm excited to to see because I've always kind of thought he had a really good voice yeah. and it was very similar type sounding. But um, I'm 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 just excited to <laughs> see some good well, music. I, I do know that Warren Ham has toured with him in the past as like a backup musician, not as a 
a member of the band. So to bring him in is kind of a natural progression. And uh, back during Joe Williams' first tenure in the band, he had some vocal difficulties because he was trying to burn the candle at both ends. Basically, he admitted as much to me when I interviewed him back in the 90s. Um, but yeah, he was parting too hard and it was affecting his voice. So they'd have Warren Ham singing for Joe. And I think Joe is, I don't know if he was lip syncing to Warren or what was going on, but he was kind of doing lead vocals for Toto during that tour from the background. And so him coming into the, the role he's at, they've got two solid vocalists they can use now. And he's a multi-instrumentalist. He's like their utility player because he can play sax. I think he can play keys too. And I think he did play sax uh, for them on their last tour. I I think he did tour with them on the 40 trips around the sun tour. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, I I was already watching some videos of, of uh, him and the, and Toto live. And I mean, it's, I, I'm. I think it's just going to be great. I think it's going to be great for the fans. I think there's a there's a good time for it. I mean, I couldn't when Steve Lukather said, "Yeah, that's it for Toto." I'm like, yeah, really? Is it? Because it never seems like it's been it for them. It's a well. It's I'm well, going to take a little break. <laughs> well, he's he's been clever with how he parses his words. He didn't say it was it for Toto. He said it, this is it for this incarnation of Toto. Oh, that's right. That's you're right. Whereas in 2008, he actually said Toto is done. He uh, he that time around, he said he had said in an interview before that around 06 or 07, it just didn't feel like Toto anymore. If there wasn't at least one of the Porcaro brothers and David Page in the band, and he went on that one tour because. Uh, Lee Sklar came in to uh, play bass for Mike Porcaro because of ALS. And uh, David Page was, uh, he wasn't trying at that point, so it was Greg Filmganis. And Steve Porcaro didn't come back into the fold until 2010. He left the band way back in 86, and he didn't come back until 2010. So it just didn't feel right to him at that point. And Bobby's voice was it was pretty much shot. I saw them in 2006 and Pamela was painful to Ooh. listen to. It, it was just bad, bad, bad. And it's to the point where I can't even listen to falling in between live, which is the album they put out to, for that tour. And it's unlistenable as far as I'm, falling in between the studio album is phenomenal. The live album that went with that tour is, I just can't bring myself to listen to it because Bobby Kimball's vocals are shot. Well, and, and it's, you brought up Pamela and I'm sitting there going, Oh, that's going to be a rough one. I mean, that's rough. That's rough by itself. Even when you're in top vocals, vocal uh, shape. And he was definitely not in top vocal shape. And so hearing, I, I'm, I'd have to listen to that because I'm just kind of thinking, wow, that would be really, really tough to sing without dropping it a key. Um, yeah. Which, you know, they, they could do, but you know, fans, they don't, they don't like when you do that. <laughs> they don't. Well, I mean, yes and no. <laughs> um, because they dropped, I think St. George and the dragon for live in Poland because Joe Williams lost an octave off the top end of his range. So he couldn't, he couldn't have done St. George and the dragon in the original key if he wanted to. So they dropped it to a lower key so he could sing it. Um, and I thought it sounded great. And honestly, 
Chicago should have done that with Jason Sheff. They should have dropped it into a key that he wouldn't have struggled with because he is a tenor singer, but he doesn't have the top range. He doesn't have the high end that Peter Cetera had. And, had, and that's a very good point because Peter Cetera should be dropping some a key. I, I was. Well, well, he, I think he he did on some songs uh, in more recent years. He's since retired, but um, on his, I did hear that some of the songs were dropped to lower keys just so he could sing them with the same level of confidence he used to. Right. Well, and that was wasn't that the big thing on the Chicago with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Chicago was, well, Peter Cetera wanted it. He didn't want to play bass. I think was one of the things. And he and I think they were fine with that. It, it was more the that he wanted to change the key for twenty five or six to four. Right. And they didn't want to do that. Well, we never got the reunion that we all thought was gonna happen for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for Chicago. We didn't, we didn't we got Danny, but we didn't get Peter. And they only got Danny for one song. And he played along yeah. with Triss. So Yeah. Like, I, well, what I liked about Danny was more the speech than the playing. Yeah, that I was mean, great. The, the, the speech, I mean, he gave the best acceptance speech of anyone. And I, I he had me in tears of laughter or some of the stuff he was saying. He didn't pull any punches. He, he told it like it was. He was a real straight shooter with that acceptance speech. And it, I I really appreciated that. Yeah, he absolutely pulled zero punches in that. I mean, what has he got to lose? You know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they gonna let me back in the band? Nope. Nope. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I'd love to uh, see Danny's California Transit Authority do a joint tour with the Docks of Oz, the, the new Toto lineup. I really think those two bands sharing the stage would be phenomenal. Yeah, there was a time there too that I kind of uh, was like, well, which Chicago version? of is is more chicago and the reason i say that is you know when when bill champlin was still playing with california transit authority and you had donnie Dawkins up there sometimes um and then jason chef was even guesting with him a few times i'm like well that's that's almost as chicago as as this band with neil o'donnell and and those guys so i don't know i mean Music, I mean, they're all fantastic musicians, so you're going to get a good show no matter what you are. It's really, if you really want to get worked up about, hey, it's this is real Chicago or this is not real Chicago. It's, I've, I exited stage left when Bill Champlin was, was shown the door. Um, I did give them a, another shot with um, 36 because I heard the title track now. I was like, this is phenomenal. I got the album and I was like, they'd open with that. Okay, this phenomenal, great start. And then I heard the rest of the album and it, I was bored to tears. <laughs> it was, it sounded like classic Chicago, but there's absolutely no emotion. It was like a bunch of robots playing the music. I, there was no feeling there. It was completely sterile. I was like, I'd almost rather have Chicago 30 where the music was, I'm sorry, but it was pretty bad. It was, it was saccharine. It was, I mean, they put you in a coma with the first half of the album because they put all the ballads together and then they put the up-tempo stuff towards the back of the album. Well, that doesn't work because you're in a coma by the time you get to the up-tempo stuff. And you're too, so deep in the coma, the up-tempo stuff isn't going to wake you up. Um, yeah. And then I, almost, I almost preferred that to 36 where, yeah, it sounds more like Chicago, 
but it doesn't feel like Chicago. It had no feeling. Well, and and on 32, 30 also, um, it it to me it was kind of the same thing. Like like feel, I liked feel. That's actually what I heard on the radio, and that's how I even knew they had a new album out at the time. But you take the horns and you put it on like track fourteen version, the version with the horns on track fourteen, and then you're like, you you lead off with this one and it's okay, and then you follow it up with like six Jason Se- Jason Chef ballads that all sound almost identical to me, and then there's like a decent Bill Champlin, um, song in there, and then there's, um. 90 Degrees and Freezing, which I kind of liked from Robert Lamb on there. And then you got a whole bunch more of, you know, Caroline and, you know, some of that other stuff. And I just was not, I was not overly yeah. impressed with it. And, and, and on 36, your same thing now. And then you look at it and it's like Jason Sheff's the only Chicago member to play on it on now. And then yeah. <laughs> the rest of it was all recorded by the band. And you can tell that the band's not, they're not producers, they're not engineers. Like they just... It's a very sterile sounding album. I mean, some something coming I know on there. I'm listening to that when it first came out because that was one of the preview tracks that came out. And I'm like, this is, this sounds like a, a Chicago song. Uh, and then I'm listening to some of those. And then you got America, um, which is just ugh, it, like it's just trite. And, and oh, it's terrible. Lee. <laughs> uh, Lee should not write lyrics. I, I have tremendous respect for his trumpet playing. He is a phenomenal soloist. He's probably the best improv- improvisational player in the horn section of Chicago. Uh, nothing but respect for his trumpet playing. And I'm guessing he can even write some decent charts, do do some good arranging. But he shouldn't write lyrics. If you want, especially not political, leave that to Robert Lamb. That That's his bread and butter. That's... Yeah. That's what he was known for, and he did a fantastic job back in the day. Um, but yeah, America was horrid. It just painful. And going back to Thirty, I actually um, I never bought Thirty. I, I someone had leaked a pre-release that actually was completely different versions on like four or five of the songs. Caroline had a different intro. Uh, that uh, duet Bill Champlin did had a different opening. I think. Jason Chef sang the opening instead of Bill. It, it was, it was a lot different, and it actually had feeling uh, more so than the the official release version. So I was kind of disappointed. The track order was the same, so I still had that complaint. But um, yeah, Thirty Six didn't have that at all. It was like you said that first track. Jason Chef was the only one on it, and it, it saying something about the band when this one song on the album that sounds the most Chicago is the least Chicago because it only has one member of the band actually performing on it. Right. Okay. So we had another death this week and um, Tony Lewis, the bass player um, singer of, of the outfield. And, you know, it, as the eighties have sort of gone, gone uh, or gotten revived here recently in the last few years, um, you know, who can, who can forget, uh, your love by the outfield? I mean, I think that's one of the quintessential 80s songs, but he was only 62. Oh, Way too young. And yeah, his, those vocal harmonies of the outfield, they were just phenomenal. I mean, they're so tight. They're so phenomenal. I mean, it's going, but 
they remind me of like Little River Band in the seventies or the Eagles or Poco. The vocal harmony is just that tight where that set them apart from a lot of other bands of that era. Yeah, and and they did it consistently. Uh and, and they had some I mean, just I didn't realize that how many how many great songs that they actually had. Um until I mean I loved I loved For You and Your Love. And For You was actually from um um the nineties. But Okay. I really didn't really like Voices of Babylon and all these other songs that were that were coming coming up when I was uh um listening to them the other day and I was like, Oh wow. Actually I had a really really like a lot of good songs. Of course I always remember the video uh uh for Your Love and then, you know, SNL's done did a little sketch on that too and and we played it in my my eighties band, so I'm I'm kind of I don't know, I have a soft spot for it in my heart <laughs> because we played it. But getting even in our band where we have three kind of lead singers, getting them all to harmonize that, it's tough. I mean it's a it's a very tough song. And then Oh I, I can imagine. And we had a female singing it. Um I can sing it a little bit, but I can't play bass and sing it at the same time. So um we had a female singing it and she couldn't sing the bridge. And because it was too low. So I'm like, so it's too high and too low. So you have to have two different people singing it. We had another guy sing the bridge of it because, and that's just, I, I think that's just a testament to Tony's voice and his range and, and oh, absolutely. The, the catchiness of the songwriting too. I mean, I just, it's a, it's a, it's a big loss, especially when, you know, we think about people like our generation of uh, coming out of the eighties and all these people now dying, you know, we've I've already had Prince and George Michael and of course, Michael Jackson and, and Tony Lewis and, and Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. And Eddie I mean. Van Halen. And that's just in the last, you know, couple of those just in the last two weeks. So, I mean, and the, then there are of course a few from the seventies, Helen Reddy, uh, Lee Kerslake, Mac well, Davis. late late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Mac Davis. Yeah. Just far too many. Oh, and Peter Green, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's been a rough year. I mean, not quite as bad as I think was it 2016 when we lost David Bowie. Oh yeah, there's another one. You know. <laughs> yeah, just. And admittedly, I didn't get into David Bowie until much, much later. It, he, he kind of was in the background of my mind. He, I didn't dislike him, but he was just kind of there for me. And then over time, I developed an appreciation for it. And I I think the song that really got me into him more was Life on Mars from the TV show that was British. And then they made an American version. And that was a theme song, of course. And I was like, what is this? This is phenomenal. And uh, that that's what brought me into David Bowie a lot more than I had been. And, and I... I really, I didn't even know about Bowie until, you know, in the 80s when Modern Love came out and China Girl and those. That was my first exposure to him. I thought he was a new artist at the time. Back in those days, my mom would be like, no, he's been around forever. My dad, he was like, that's Ziggy Stardust. I was like, okay. I don't know what any of that means, but uh, <laughs> but I did love those videos. And he, he was... A chameleon. He he would reinvent himself, and that's how he was able to stay relevant. Much like Madonna, uh, every few years she'd reinvent herself to stay re- relevant. 
Yeah, and Madonna was, I mean, Madonna's had such a big influence, obviously, and I think everybody knows that. And then, you know, Lady Gaga and her sort of homage to to Madonna and her persona. Oh, yeah. But Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, it's the 80s still have this huge influence. Of course, nobody wants the fashion of the 80s, but I want, I want... My, I want the fashion in the 80s. Back. My, my wife won't let me get away with it. I, I keep ask, asking for like a skinny leather tie for my birthday. And she, oh, hell no. I, I tried to wear uh, the collars up on my polo shirts. And she, nope. I, I tried to do the T-shirt with a sport jacket over it. Nope. I, I keep getting <laughs> vetoed every time I try to pull an 80s fashion out. and Oh, well. <laughs> Well, that's the fun part of being in an '80s band. I get to dress that way whenever we perform. So I've got my, I've got what I usually end up wearing is a uh, rolled-up jeans with like uh, Vans, with a Hartford Whalers T-shirt, with a sport coat on it, and I have these neon green kind of Ray-Ban-looking kind of sunglasses, and that's like my normal wear for for a night. Hey, that that was the look, absolutely. I mean, the only thing missing maybe the suspenders, the Michael J. Fox, Marty McFly suspenders. <laughs> well, I definitely have to do that now. I think. Yeah, yeah. Or if you go back to the seventies, you get the uh, Robin Williams and Steve Luther actually had a matching set in some of those early music videos of Toto from the seventies. The rainbow suspenders. Oh, I. I wonder where I can get. I'm probably get that online. I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah. The uh, a lot of people criticize that fashion, but I I kind of miss some of that stuff. I don't miss the '70s fashion so much. The bell bottoms and the polyester leisure suit. The the '70s can keep that. Uh, the '70s the hair. 80s, Ugh. Oh yeah, absolutely. I just think of John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever when he, he gets upset at people messing up his hair. When yes. he's getting ready to go out. Yes, I I had, I remember I had a uh, like a hot pink polo that I used to pop the collar on, and I used to tuck that in, tuck it in to um, these kind of white shorts that had like these grid. You got to think of this like '80s grid type patterns on it that were bunch of different colors like black and kind of like a green or whatever that was my that was my go-to yeah it was i heard some of that stuff was starting to come back but i don't think any of it really came back to the level where i could pull it off again without getting strange looks god help us (laughs) that that's something my wife would say, but probably uh, with a very different connotation than you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, speaking of influence and reinventing themselves, our topic tonight is the post Beatles, so to speak. The, not so much the Beatles, uh, the Beatles have been discussed to death as a unit, as a group. I mean, there's not much, as much as I love them as much as their music is great, as much as most people who were born in the UK intravenously got their lyrics piped in. So my wife rarely listens to Beatles, but when she does, she can sing along because it's 
it's in her blood. I mean, she was born in the UK, so the Beatles are in her blood. Uh, but the actual Beatles as the Beatles, as we knew them as a group, that's been discussed to death. So I'm going to fo- we're going to focus more on what the Beatles did after they left as individuals, um, or in some cases they collaborated again. Um, just not all together at once, but Paul and Ringo a few times got together. Um, I think George and Ringo both played on one of ELO's albums together later on. Um, but to be fair, and I think Beatles fans, diehard Beatles fans would shoot us if we didn't go this. Let's go all the <laughs> way back to uh, the first two Beatles that either left were were let go Stuart Sutcliffe and Pete Best um Stu was the original bass player vocalist um he uh with but he didn't sing that often is my understanding uh there's on one of the Beatles anthologies is a recording of him singing love me do in uh Hamburg and not love me do um Love Me Tender, Elvis's song. And apparently that was a hit with the ladies. He was an attractive guy. and That was their thing back then. And uh, he considered himself more an artist than a musician. So there's no post-Beatles musical output, but there's some paintings that he did in art school. And they, they're viewable online. And I did uh, put a link to them up on our Facebook uh, page. So feel free to go check those out. Um, sadly, he wasn't with us for long after he left the Beatles. He died at age 21 of uh, aneurysm. He had an aneurysm and it just took him out age 21. Um, at the time, he was dating and living with the family of Astrid Kircher, who took some of the very first photos of the Beatles um, back at, when they were still in Hamburg. And uh, she continued as a photographer, I think, for about six to eight years after that. And then she got to a point where she realized that nothing because the Beatles had gotten so big, nothing she ever took a photo of after that would ever be acknowledged because she was known for those photos and the Beatles had become as big as they were. She would always be known for that. So she decided to walk away from photography. And I don't know that she ever, at least not professionally ever took any more photos. Um, So she wasn't really a beetle, but she dated one and she was responsible for their looks. Those photos, she actually styled them uh, in those early photos she took of them and gave them a, their own unique style. It was before they had the mop tops. So she gave them this very unique look and it, if anything, that look is almost timeless. If you look at that today, I wouldn't be surprised seeing people looking like the Beatles did then today, whereas the mop tops kind of came and went. Um, so I have to at least pay homage to her because she was responsible for that look, for being a contributor to what they were early on, their image. Um, is that is that the one, I think there's one that always strikes my head, um, or strikes my, strike, strikes, sticks out in my mind. And it's one of, I think it's like John Lennon, and he's kind of crouched, and... I think he's like looking at the camera or something, but he he just it looks very modern, and it's. It, it, I'm wondering if that is that from that era of pictures. It could very well be. I mean, there the pictures she took were very artsy. There's a great one, um, and, and it's probably the most iconic 
it, but it's just George, John, and Stu. And they're on the, uh, Stu's kind of, they're on the pick, bed of a pickup truck. Stu's kind of leaning against it, standing on the ground. John is sitting on it, and George is standing on it. And it's just the three of them, and Stu's wearing these dark sunglasses. And it's like, even though it's missing Pete Best and Paul McCartney, it's a very iconic photo of that era of the Beatles. And it's of the ones she took, that's probably my favorite of that era. Um, now, is this back in the Quarrymen days? It was post-Quarrymen, but it was it was that transition when they were playing okay. the, what was it, Cavern Club in Hamburg? Right. Um, where they met Ringo, because Ringo was in another band that would open for them. And uh, Ringo was also their, pardon the pun or whatever, Ringo was their ringer. Whenever Pete Best was sick or couldn't play, Ringo would step in. So when the decision was made, George Martin didn't want to use Pete Best. Um, He kind of made that known to Brian Epstein, and Brian Epstein made that known to the Beatles and to the other three. So they went with... uh, they brought in Ringo because they'd played with him before in Hamburg and they personality wise, he fit that that was the other issue with Pete best. It wasn't that he was a bad drummer. It's just personality. The other three of them, George, Paul and uh, John got along and Pete would always go off and kind of do his own thing. So he had a different personality. Personalities didn't quite mesh and, um, he put together a Pete Best band. He did a few things after he left the Beatles, but he was in a few other groups that didn't go anywhere. And it got to the point where he realized he'd never see the success he would have had he not been fired from the Beatles. And he also realized that a lot of people were taking advantage of the fact that he'd been part of the Beatles to try to capitalize on that, to try to sell records. And he, he quit music for a while. And I think he was a civil servant for 20 years. So that's, the post Beatles career of Pete Best. <laughs> Did you ever see, um, it, it's, it's on topic, but it's, but it's off topic for a second, but, um, the, the movie yesterday. I started to watch it with my wife and she actually didn't like it at all. She said she couldn't, the conceit of the movie that the, this event happens and, only this one guy remembers Beatles and everyone else. Who were they? Um, she she said, "No, that doesn't make any sense to me. That would never happen." She, she could not suspend her disbelief <laughs> enough to enjoy the movie. So we only made it through. I think about the first half hour, forty five minutes of it. It, it. I liked it a lot. Um, I thought it was very, very well done. It was it was a good tribute um, to the Beatles. But I, I guess. I guess I just brought it up because I was just kind of curious to see what you had heard about since we were talking about the about the Beatles here and kind of, you know, what ifs. Um, and it was just kind of a what if, you know, what if what if he best had not been replaced? What if, you know, Stu Sutcliffe it, were still there? Would they have taken off? I don't think they would have. I think there's just a a once in a lifetime sometimes mixture of people that just seem to work together well. And I- that was one of them. I partially agree. I agree with you on the Pete Best side. I, I think they needed Ringo to pull it all together. But I think 
they could have still made it big had Stu not left, but they'd still replace Pete with Ringo because Stu actually did have the personality that fit in with the rest of them. He just didn't have, he was more interested in art than in music. And that's why he left. He left to become an art student. And uh, there's actually another movie. uh, I think it's called Backbeat, which is a fictionalization of the Beatles in that era. And Steve Dorff plays Stu Sutcliffe. Ian Hart plays John Lennon. I forget who played George and Pete Best and Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr because they all make appearances too. But And I, I forget who played Astrid Kircher, but it's predominantly about John Lennon, Stu Sutcliffe, and Astrid Kircher. And they kind of portrayed it as like a love triangle. And talking with a friend of mine who is a big Beatles fan, I don't know if there's any truth to this. One of the theories is that... Uh, Stu and John got into a huge fight. I mean, a physical fight. And John, at one point in the fight, kicked Stu in the head. And that led to his aneurysm. Is That's one of the conspiracy theories of uh, the early Beatles and why Stu Sutcliffe had that aneurysm. I oh, wow. It's speculation. I don't know how much truth there is to it. But it, it's an interesting theory. And if any Beatles fans want to chime in uh, on the Facebook page or drop us an email at perpinrick at gmail.com uh, to confirm, deny, or uh, have you say your piece about whether or not you believe that, feel free. I mean, we're, I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying it's a rumor or theory I've heard, and I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear love to hear what they have to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. And to that point, one of the things we've said we'd like to do is, uh, in addition to discussing music, discuss movies that where music is heavily featured or it's about music, like Almost Famous. And Yesterday would be another good one. Backbeat, uh, this one I was just talking about with Steve Dorff and Ian Hart playing the early Beatles. Um, it's just some ideas to toss out there. We might come back and revisit both Yesterday and uh, Backbeat. I think they'd make for interesting discussions. Well, I like talking music and movies, and especially when there's music or movies about music, then I'm all all about that. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. And we'll have to do the Eddie and the Cruisers movies. Those are a must. If if we discuss music movies, those those are especially the first one. It just... It was such a great 80s movie, and it just captured the music of the 60s in the 80s. I mean, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, they they nailed it. I don't know how they... Okay. Yeah, um, for yeah, Eddie and the Cruisers, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band totally nailed the 60s sound in the early 80s, and I have to give them props for being able to do that. It's not an easy task to ignore the music that came after and up to that point and just recreate that style. And there's definite Beatles influence there too. I mean, there's a bit of homage there as far as I'm concerned. And the fact, the other thing um, that kind of tips its hat to the Beatles for that movie is the second album, the whole premise of the movie that they've recorded the second album and the master tapes were missing. And the second album was supposed to be so musically adventurous and so out there, a complete reinvention of this band. And that 
Beatles, Sergeant Peppers. I mean, that, that completely reinvented themselves or some might argue they did that with revolver or rubber soul. I'm, different Beatles fans have different ideas of when that transformation took place. But most people, I think say it was Sergeant Peppers that really flipped the switch to a completely different musical direction. So when they talk about the, they kind of encapsulate that in Andy and the Cruisers to only two albums. The, they put out this one album, recorded a second album, and tapes were lost, and Eddie just disappeared. And so that's uh, I kind of see Beatles influence in that. So that brings us back to the topic at hand, post Beatles. So <laughs> right um, now that we've got the two short-lived Beatles out of the way, time to get into the meat and the potatoes. So John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and this being the um, 40th anniversary year it's coming up this December of John Lennon's uh, being murdered um, incidentally back to just have to mention Astrid Kircher died earlier this year age 81 so uh, this interesting 40th anniversary of Lennon and the person responsible for that early image of them bo- both happening the same year uh, it's just weird set of circumstances there but anyway back to john um his we've they had that 2020 special about him it's like two hour special it was really interesting and it delved into that whole period between 75 when he just walked away from music until 80 when he was going to have this comeback with yoko double fantasy and unfortunately that was cut short and it was, and the world is worse off for it, unfortunately. Um, I really back to John. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I really remember that that night so vividly to me. I think it was six, and I remember my my mom, who was a huge Beatles fan. I mean, she, I still have some of her um, Beatles memorabilia, and I still have some of those albums, um, the original albums and I remember waking up in the middle it was like the middle of the night and I think I was going to go to the bathroom or something like that I always had my door open her bedroom was across the hall from mine and she's sitting in there she has one little one dim lamp on she's smoking a cigarette and she's drinking a bottle or a bottle of wine a glass of wine and the radio is playing and it's it's a guy talking about John Lennon, the the murder, and all the information that's flooding in. And I remember I come in there and I go, what's the matter? Because she's crying as well. And she explains that John Lennon uh, had been murdered. And I I knew who the Beatles were. I mean, we used to play, I think I said on the first podcast, we used to play Abbey Road all the time. And we used to, you know, run around the house and Maxwell Silverhammer and me and Mr. Mustard and all that stuff. And I just remember like that it really affected her because it was like it was like a transitional period, I think, in her life at that point. It was the heroes and you know, that nostalgia of the sixties and growing up. I mean, she graduated high school in sixty six, was it was like it, it was that innocence was gone. And it was now like Wow. And then the fact that the Beatles would never be getting back together at that point. I mean, they, I, 
we'll talk about the anthology a little bit, but it's, I, I just always remember that night. And I can, I can it's one of the things I remember more than anything in my entire life, to be honest with you. But that's the impact that he had on her. And I, there were a lot of people all over the world that felt that way that night. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I was only four, so I don't remember it. My my parents were of, they certainly knew about the Beatles. They were a young married couple with kids when the Beatles were popular. I mean, but my, my siblings were a little too young for the Beatles and my parents were a little too old. My parents got married in 55 graduated college in 55 and 56 so they their era was definitely before the beatles came to pass and uh, that that being said it, it's not that they disliked the beatles or anything it just wasn't as much on their radar and then with my siblings being my eldest sister was born in the late 50s so she was a young girl when the beatles were really coming coming up and of course all my other siblings were younger than that so it was it didn't really catch them at least not not at the time so much i mean they probably heard it on the radio but being so young it didn't really stick their way it would have had they been like teenagers right and that was that that was my mom's thing i mean it was that was her teenage years and i mean she I mean, she turned 20 in 68. So, you know, when the Beatles came up, she was 15, like 14, 15. And then when she graduated high school, they were still in the, in the peak of their career. And it was just, I mean, that, that was her childhood, like from her, at, least, at least her adolescence to teen years. I mean, it was formative for so many people. And I think one of the missed opportunities there with the Beatles was Woodstock. I mean, they would have been the perfect band to perform there, but just to pass the torch, unfortunately that that didn't happen. But can you imagine just uh, had that been their last concert instead of on top of the Apple records building or whatever it was when they finally pulled the plug on things. But I just, Woodstock was kind of the passing of the torch unofficially. I mean, sure, they didn't play there, but then the next generation or the transition between their generation and the next one, Woodstock kind of flipped the switch on that. Okay, the Beatles are done. We're starting into a new era. And uh, it it kind of went with John Lennon. When that Beatles ended in 69, Woodstock happened in 69, and early seventies, his music before he took his five year step away to be a stay at home dad for Sean, that between 70 and 75, the Imagine album and Plastic Ono and all those albums he put in, in those years, I think I had Imagine and Alive in New York City on cassette. I've got the John Lennon collection on CD some point some i was into some of that music but i found it kind of hit or miss i the imagine album had some great stuff on it besides just imagine i mean imagine of course is that's iconic it it's one of the most beautiful songs ever by any musician and that, no one can ever take that away from john i mean say what you will about this stuff with the beatles 
he put an exclamation mark on his career with Imagine. That was just such a beautiful song. And that's not to take away from some of his other decent material, like uh, Beautiful Boy or uh, Instant Karma, a favorite of mine. Uh, his cover of Benny King's Stand By Me was kind of fun and decent. I wasn't overly a fan of that because I don't think he changed it enough to really make it his own. It, there was still too much Ben E. King in John's version to really wow me. Um, but that being said, uh, this political activism, more so than his music in that era, really captured the spirit of the 60s and carried it into the 70s for a lot of people. So I can totally understand why it would have had that effect on your mother even after even into her 20s because john was still he was trying to lead by example even more so than in his music yes very much so and and it was it 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 kind of goes in in very stark contrast to some of the other beatles and when we talk about that we can kind of i guess compare um and contrast a little bit in the uh i mean it's definitely different than the approach that Paul McCartney went in. It's similar to George Harrison, although his was a lot more sort of introspective and, you know, his place in the world. Yeah, spiritual. And then Ringo's was just, you know, sort of pop. And and so I guess that, you know, I I think, but but John, he was always that kind of guy in the Beatles. And I remember Paul McCartney talking about how they wrote songs together and they said something about... uh, that, you know, Paul was always the optimist and John was the sort of more pessimistic or cynical uh, one of the two of them. And you can you can hear it. He, he pointed out, we can work it out. You know, here's Paul McCartney wrote the part where it's like, we can work it out. We can work it out. You know, all that part. And then John Lennon's part that he wrote was the life's too short for all the fussing and fighting part. And that's the contrast. I mean, you can see it when you now that when you listen to that, you know, oh, that's definitely Paul's part. That's definitely the part that John wrote. And it yeah. continued on in their solo careers. Oh, absolutely. And um, speaking of the assassination of John, um, I had the privilege of going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they had that exhibit there. It was temporary exhibit. I don't know how much longer it had been there after I saw it. But they had the glasses he was wearing. They had the bag that held his belongings. And that was so sobering just to see that. And they had um, sheets of his lyrics handwritten from notebooks when he was writing lyrics, both with the Beatles and after the Beatles. And it was just a very sobering experience to made it more. It just made him more human. Like He's he's iconic. He's people he's on a pedestal for a lot of people and what i kind of liked about the 2020 special last week is that it humanized him he walked away from music for five years to be a stay-at-home dad how much more relatable can he be i mean i think that's when he did that i think that's what made his assassination is murder however you want to phrase it made it even harder for people to take because he had done that. He had made himself one of them. You're yeah. right. It, it did make him more more accessible, I think, to people. He just seemed like a more... Uh, I, I mean, if you look at, like, Paul, and he was just blowing up all over the place, and he was 
pop star and all this kind of stuff, you know, pop rock in the 70s. And then there's there's John who's just like, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And if it sells, it sells. If it doesn't, it doesn't. He, he didn't have to go and make, you know, huge records. He, he had enough to live off of and Beatles royalties themselves, Obviously. you know, but he was about just, I'm going to do what I want to do. And, and that's what he did. And, and you got to admire him for that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and his son, Julian, uh, he, I think he won a Grammy in 84 for best new artist. I mean, some of his stuff you can, I mean, his greatest, his biggest plus was also his biggest minus and the biggest, he sounded so much like his father. Yes. And, and that looked was, a lot like that was good. Yeah. It was good and bad. I mean, because unfortunately, because he sounded so much like John, he was stuck in his father's shadow. And it's unfortunate because I really liked a lot of Julian's music. I dare say I like Julian's music better than some of John's solo music. There's just something about it. And maybe it's the era. I mean, I grew up in the 80s and Julian was making music in the 80s where John was early 70s. I, I missed the window with John's solo material a little bit even though I tend to prefer music from before I was born over music since, but um, there's something about Julian's music that he, he touched uh, saltwater. That is an environmental song. He, he got a little political and stuff like his dad had been. I keep the people working. I think was on his express yourself album. That um, was kind of a being part of the machine, the corporate machine and that kind of thing. And it was uh I mean, he, he kind of dabbled into some of the same themes that his father did. But unfortunately, yeah, he got stuck in his father's shadow. And it's a pity because people who discount him for that are missing out on some decent music. Well, The Lot is probably one of my favorite songs of the 80s. And I, I mean, the whole album is, is great. But um, I, I just, I think when that was going on and my mom was hearing I was playing his music in the eighties. She's like, Oh my God, he sounds so much like, like John. I can't believe it. And then of course, you know, that, that kind of went into this, well, well, the Beatles should have a reunion and they should just have Julian play um, and sing in John's place. And then Paul McCartney's like, why would we do that to that kid? I mean, it's like, he already has to live in, in the shadow of, of his dad anyway, and get compared to it. It's like, why would, why would we do that? Um, so he kind of, they kind of shot that down and then that's, I I get that. I mean, that's fair. Yeah, I I do too. I mean, as great as it would have sounded and I I do think it would have sounded fantastic. It it would not have been fair to Julian at all. It would have, that would have put an exclamation mark. That would have really cemented him in his father's shadow. There was, there would have been no way he would have ever been able to escape it if they'd done that. And kudos to Paul for recognizing that and preventing it from happening because there's more to it than just the music. As much as I'd have loved to have heard music that they would have made together, there's more to life than music. And the psychological ramifications that would have had on Julian, I think would have just been devastating. I mean, he, he was a good musician in his own right, and he never would have been known for that if they had done that. Yes. And, and now we'll never know, of course, but it's, um, I think it's, it's just, I mean, cause you know, with, with George's death, we'll, we'll never yeah. have, we'll never have that, that ability, but, uh, I, I still, I can, I admire, I can still admire Julian's music on its own merit, which I think it, it has 
plenty of plenty of that. It's got it's I mean, it's good in its own way. Yeah. Yeah, it's the his father's influence is there, but his upbringing and his brother his half brother Sean's upbringing were very very different. Um and that comes across a bit too. Um John wasn't the best father for Julian. Uh he was great for Sean. But Julian he he was largely neglected. John forgot about Cynthia and Julian. Um as Yoko came on and came into his life and it's like Cynthia who? Julian who? I mean, he's I think towards the end he did start to uh try to fix that, but I think that's sadly something that was prevented that from ha- his death prevented that from happening a full reconciliation between Julian and John uh, so I, I think there was unfinished business there emotionally between the two of them which I think if John had lived they would have reconciled and heck who knows maybe they would have even recorded some music together as father and son which would have been remarkable too yeah and that was my understanding as well as that during the end there that they had had some communication they were and I think this actually came from Sean um he had said that he had that there had that there had been some reaching out there and then tragically it just wasn't happen uh because of the, the death but you're right yeah. I and mean, I would be interested to hear what that would have sounded like I do think Julian and Sean have done some work together I mean Sean doesn't do music the way Julian does I mean I think he did a cover of Give Peace a Chance uh, on like the, it's like the 10th anniversary of John's death or something. And Julian participated in that with him, I think. But his musical output's very limited. I don't think he considers himself a musician so much as Julian does. I, I think it's kind of a hobby here and there that he does every now and then. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I've seen and, and experienced with... Uh with his work. Um, it's just been here and there. And, and, and in all fairness, um, I, I think he's kind of tried to chart a different path. And so, and, and that's good for him. I think he's, he's got the pressure too. I mean, you got the name Lennon, like what, what are you doing yeah. musically? What do you, what are you going to put something out and are you writing songs type of thing? But I think he's, he kind of tended more towards what Yoko did. And seemed yeah. to more gravitate towards that, and I guess it makes sense, you know, based on when, how old he was when his when John was was murdered, and compared to Julian, who was much older um, at that point. Uh, so, I mean, it's and and that's that's fine. That's that's the everybody, you know, when I was when I was a kid, it'd be like, oh, it would be great if I was uh, the child of a celebrity. Would it? Would it be great? I mean, you, you look even like basketball, and you think like, well, Michael Jordan's sons. Just because they have like Michael Jordan's name, they get you know they play NCAA basketball, but I don't see any of them in the NBA. And there's right. you know, but that's that expectation. Oh, you're Michael Jordan's son. You must be just as great. Well, I don't know. I I, I don't know if it would be great to be a celebrity's kid. Yeah, that's a tough call. Um, and that's I mean. It'd be interesting to hear some of the other Beatles offsprings take like Danny Harrison or um, Stella McCartney, or any of them. I've, does Ringo have any kids? I'm not as familiar with his. I know he's married to a Bond girl, but he, beyond that, I don't know as much about his personal life. He does, and I believe his a son is a drummer I, also. Oh, yeah. Zach Starkey. Yeah. Uh, he, with who? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, I think he replaced uh, Simon Phillips when uh, Simon Phillips toured with the Who, and that's actually the guys from Toto were there uh, at that concert, including Jeff Percaro, and they were blown away by Simon's playing. And so when Jeff passed, even as different of completely different drummer from Jeff Percaro, Simon Phillips he slid right into that role and to Toto's credit, they didn't try to replace Jeff. They went in a completely different direction. Simon plays nothing like Jeff Percaro. Right. And it worked. And after he left, there goes Zach Starkey. I mean, and that worked too. And I think Zach Starkey was also on the ELO tour in 2000 for the zoom uh, Zoom tour. Mm. I think he was supposed to be uh, Jeff Lynne's drummer in that that reformed ELO. Uh, yeah, I'd have to look that up, um, but that would make sense. I mean, considering Jeff Lynne's kind of association and friendship with the members of the Beatles. Yeah, and Ringo played drums on two tracks on that, and George played slide guitar on two tracks on that Zoom album. I think that came out in like 2000. And I did pick it up because of the Beatles' involvement, and I was on an ELO kick at the time. I had their, I had one of their, I think, the Time album, which is their concept album, and I had like a two-disc uh, compilation of their entire career that the the best of over the course of their career but i was on an elo kick at the time so when zoom came out it was obvious yeah i'll get that and it didn't wow me i appreciated it for what it was musicianship was phenomenal jefflin's production was phenomenal but it just didn't feel like classic elo to me but the fact that he had beatles there i mean if the beatles had reformed with julian he would have been the ideal producer because the stuff he did with George Harrison, Cloud9, Traveling Wilburys, he knew how to get that sound. He knew how to get the best out of George Harrison. And I think he would have done the same with Paul and Ringo. Well, I think that's why he was the only choice for producer for, for the Beatles when they did the anthology and did Free as yeah. a Bird and Real Love. I mean, that was... Oh, absolutely. That was, that was like a no-brainer to them. Yeah, yeah. And I mean... I do think, shifting to George a bit, I, I think of all the Beatles post-Beatle output, my favorite post-Beatles Beatle album is Cloud Nine by George Harrison. And it's because Jeff Lynne came in and George captured, he recaptured that Beatle sound thanks to Jeff Lynne. And the, of course, I've Got My Mind Set On You is a huge hit for him. Was, I don't think he ever matched that. And then there's another track on there, a, a autobiographical song called When We Was Fab. Yes. And <laughs> I love that song. That's probably my favorite song on there. And it, it just tells that story so well. Yeah. And, and George Harrison, to me, has always been like the forgotten Beatle, to be honest with you. I mean, it, if, if a Beatle can be forgotten, I think it's, it's, it's George. Um, he, was com- he was way underutilized. Um, in his songwriting ability in the Beatles, like during the Beatles era. Um, I mean, you got some, you got something, Here Comes the Sun. I mean, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which, I mean, those are three fantastic songs. And then, but then when he started to get out, I mean, out into the, the solo realm, and you started getting things like Blow Away, 
which is my favorite George Harrison song, by the way. I mean, okay. when I when I hear that and I hear um, all those years ago, um, those to me are oh, that's a good one too. Are some just also autobiographical? True, very true. Those are those are just that's what I think of George in a solo realm as those ones. I mean, there's like what is life and all that, and but those those two blow away and and all those years ago are the ones I listen to very frequently in my car. I'm not as familiar with blow away, but, but all those years ago, um, and the seventies stuff he did, the concert of Bangladesh and all that, I'm vaguely familiar with that, but I mean, he put that concert together, but it wasn't just him. He had like bad finger and a lot of other decent musicians out there. So you want to talk about a tragic band? Oh yeah. That bad finger. Holy cow. But it's just kept on coming and not in a good way. I mean, wow. Yeah, that's that's one. I mean, that's that's that band is part of the Beatles legacy as well. And, yeah, and I mean, just tragic up and down. Yeah, because Paul McCartney gifted Come and Get It to them. Basically, he wrote that and he he just gave it to Badfinger. He said, here, take it. But that was one of their biggest hits that and uh, no matter what. Yeah, and then Harry Nilsson taken. Yeah, yeah, he he took without you to a completely different level, and then Mariah Carey covered covered it, and she covered Nilsson's version, not the Badfinger version. Yeah, uh, and that, that was Nilsen, great too. Yeah, it, it was. Um, but I, I, to me, the iconic version is still the Nilsson version, even more so than it's one of those cases where the cover surpassed the original. Um, and we're going to have a show Beatles, on that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're gonna. So, and speaking of Beatles, another instance of that. And no, no offense to Ringo, but Joe Cocker's with a little help from my friends. I'm sorry, Ringo. He blew you away. I mean, just, <laughs> he made that song his. He he took that song away from the Beatles and made it his. Absolutely, and it was. Uh, I mean, and I liked. I mean, it was. I liked Ringo Starr's version. You know, with the Beatles, but. It was the tone was completely different in Joe Cocker's version. Yeah, it was version. whimsical and fun. Yeah, and then Joe Cocker's version was just—it's almost heart wrenching. It was. Well, that's Joe Cocker. So power- <laughs> yeah, he's so powerful. I just fantastic. She came in through fantastic the bathroom window. Power. Yeah, he's, he's just. That's one of those rare instances where someone took a Beatles song and blew the Beatles away. That didn't happen often. <laughs> no, not very often at all. And uh, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a good one. And did, did Paul McCartney do um, "World Without Love" for? Uh, uh, oh, was it Peter and Gordon? Um, I think that was another one that that he wrote under. Um, pseudonym for them. I'd have to look that up, but uh, uh, that'll be one that I'll, I'll look up and I'll put it on the Facebook page if I remember it. But uh, yeah. yeah, he did that a few times. Uh, London and McCartney did. Yeah, and it, it, he was very generous in that regard. And um, no, I guess that makes a natural transition to discussing Paul from. Going from going from George, John to George, now we're circling over to Paul. But um, 
Paul with, I mean, the stuff he did with Wings, it was, it was kind of hit or miss for me. Some of it I really liked, like Band on the Run, Living Let Die, of course. I mean, Living Let Die is perhaps one of the best Bond theme songs ever. It, fantastic song, and Guns N' Roses cover of it was pretty solid too. Although, that's one where as much as I like the cover, I don't think it quite surpassed the original. Paul's for the Wings version is still preferable to me. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. He uh, Wings was one of those weird sort of sort of bands where, like we were saying earlier, where Paul just sort of showed that he was he wanted to write just kind of fun pop songs, and he liked being in a band. Um, he didn't want to be a solo artist really at that point. He he liked being in a band, and he had Denny Lane in there, which is uh, I mean that's a whole different story with the Moody Blues. Um, where he was in the early versions of the Moody Blues and then left before they got big, before Days of Future Past. So, okay. so that's kind of a, there's kind of a parallel there a little bit. Um, but then he comes, you know, and, and ends up in Wings. But it's, uh, yeah, he was on the song Go Now, which was their first hit um, before Justin Hayward and John Lodge um, joined the band. But I think for me, you know, Paul McCartney, he he just showed that he can write catchy songs. And some of them didn't yeah. make any damn sense whatsoever, and that was all right. Um, you know, like Uncle Albert, uh, that one's just kind of all over the place. But, uh, okay. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, Band on the Run. But I, I think that's when you look at, um, you know, Silly Love Songs, that was one that John uh, kind of inspired because he had said something about when asked about uh, Paul McCartney's new band, he said, well, yeah, they, you know, something about silly love songs or something like that. And, and so Paul took grabbed that and he said, you know, what's wrong with that? You know, you say the world's had enough of silly love songs. And uh, so he wrote that as kind of a, a response to John's criticism of, of wings. I, I had, um, I think that, he did that live album early nineties, uh, tripping the live fantastic. And that was a great set. I mean, he did Beatles stuff. He did wing stuff. He did solo stuff. He, he was, it was a perfect encapsulation of his entire career. I mean, if you're going to listen to anything by Paul, I think that's the one to go to because it, it's got everything. It's got the good stuff by wings and you get rid of all the filler from wings and, no offense to Paul, but there was a lot of filler. Um, yeah. And it, it, it just focuses on the really good stuff. I think he did maybe I'm amazed, which that and live and let die, I think are probably the quintessential wings songs. Those are, those are the best of the cream of the crop, so to speak. I, I, I don't think I could disagree with you. Um, I, I think I, I really like band on the run just cause it's, you know, it's catchy, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, live and let die. Um, yeah, I think though it's maybe I'm amazed. Yeah. I, I think I, I couldn't, there's not many I would put above that out of the wings era for Paul McCartney. Now, if you want to get into the eighties, um, you know, where you started getting into the duets, um, with like, with Michael Jackson, especially, which he regrets that association today, but the, yeah. But you know, say say say, and I, I I actually prefer the girl is mine to say say say. But I like say 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 too. But yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, and you've also got like Ebony and Ivory with yeah. with Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. I, I prefer that to his Michael Jackson collaborations. He and Stevie just, that's just a fun song. It's, it doesn't make you think too hard or anything. It, and it's, it, it's got a nice message to it and it d- delivers it very simply and even childlike in some regards. And sometimes that's the best way. I mean, that's what I, I will say for Paul when he did have a message, it was almost childlike in how he delivered it. And sometimes that's not a bad thing. Uh, some people see that as too naive or whimsical or whatever, but sometimes kids say the most profound things and they completely catch, catch you off guard. And I think when Paul actually did go that route, instead of doing silly love songs and tried to say something bigger, it had that childlike whimsy to it. And Ebony and Ivory, I think is a good example of that. Yeah. And there's something to be said, I think for being able to convey that, that deep of a message effectively to communicate that message effectively in a way that's easy to understand and, and digest for the listener. That's, that's tough. Um, because, oh, absolutely. And, they, and they, like you said, they did it really well in that, uh, in that song. And I mean, I, I, <laughs> I was watching best of Saturday night live and the uh, one with Joe Piscopo and uh, Eddie Murphy when it's Stevie wonder and Frank Sinatra doing kind of a, that song and I just thought it was, I mean, it's hilarious. Um, if if you haven't seen it, I would recommend going to see it. If you have seen it, see it again. Um, yeah, I, I haven't seen that. I, I will have to go back and check that out. That that was, uh, what, early 80s, I'm guessing? Uh, yeah, it had to have been like 81, in, 80, maybe. Okay. So that was in those strange period when Lorne Michaels had stepped away from the show and I, I've read the history of SNL and their 1980 is considered like the last season that they're the showrunner, the producer, or whatever only lasted that season. She was fired. I think all but one member of the cast was fired. And then they just started out from scratch in 81 with, I think Dick Ebersol was the um, producer at that point until Lauren Michaels came back in the mid eighties. But yeah, I think that era you're talking about was the Dick Ebersol area. Yeah, and this was uh, this was before the Robert Downey Jr. season um, that everybody forgets about, and <laughs> that cast was one of those kind of forgotten seasons too. They had a lot of shuffling until Lorne Michaels came back and stabilized it, and that's when you ended up with the Kevin Nealons, the Phil Hartmans, Dana Carvey's later '80s. Um, but yeah, those yeah. early '80s were kind of a kind of all over the place uh, right between the Bill Murray era and, and, you know, Dan Aykroyd and the Phil Hartman, Dana Carvey era. And God rest Phil Hartman's soul. He was brilliant. He, I mean, he, he was Reagan for them and then he was Bill Clinton. I mean, <laughs> yep. he, and his Bill Clinton was hilarious when they 92, when they had Dana Carvey as Ross Perot and George HW Bush and he was Bill Clinton that when they did that, a uh, cold open of the presidential debate. That was one of the funniest cold opens I think they've ever done. And say what you will about the stuff with uh, Tina Fey as Sarah Palin and the recent stuff with Alec Baldwin and Jim Carrey as Biden and Trump. The great stuff as well. But that I think that set the tone of that 
that set the table for the stuff that came later. I mean, that set the bar pretty high. And I will say they have leaped over that bar, but I don't think they really hit that bar until that cold open. And that was phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. And we ended up talking about SNL on, on the show today. And then um, <laughs> <laughs> we digress, but we regress. And then yeah. and we get back to kind of talking. And then, about of course, <laughs> lastly, there's Ringo. And Ringo has his all-star band. And I will say Ringo has an ear for talent. His all-star band is all-star. I mean, there's not a dud in the any of the all-star band lineups he's ever put together. So kudos to him for that. I mean, Steve Lukather of Toto, of course, you and I have both being big fans. Um, that's getting him to do that. He's a huge Beatles fan, so I, I don't think his arm had to be twisted that hard to get him to agree to join that lineup. And Richard Page, who oh, yeah. instantly tur- turned down both Toto and Chicago, he turned down Toto to replace Bobby Kimball, and then a year later he turned down Chicago to replace Peter Cetera. If that's not a testament to the guy's voice, I don't know what is. Yeah, and any band to me that has Greg Rowley in it um, from from oh, Journey is, is is an all right band. If you've got Steve Lukather, Richard Page, and Greg Rowley in your band and and uh, Ringo Starr on drums, yeah, I think you can you can pretty much print uh, print as much money as you want because um, <laughs> that is going to be a show that I'm going to want to see. Yeah, and... Uh... I think on his one of his recent albums, I think Ringo put out an album like a, just a few years ago, two three years ago, and he Paul guested on it, and he had Steve Lukather play on the track that Paul guested on, and he said Steve said that was like a dream come true. I mean, he here he was he was playing on a track with two of the the two living Beatles, um, and he. He'd played with George in the past, um, back in the 90s. I think George, I I could be wrong, but I think George might have even shown up at the uh, Tribute to Jeff concert back in 93 or so. Um, But he'd gotten the chance to play with George and just George. He'd played with Ringo on the tour, and then he had the opportunity to be in a studio with two of the, the two living Beatles, and he said just blew his mind as a huge Beatles fan to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean... If I just got to meet one of the surviving Beatles, I think I would be in awe. I don't know how I would be able to focus on playing music with them. That's, I think that would be really difficult for me, just to, just to play on there because I'd be so intimidated by I'm, I'm in this presence of that and then this greatness. Then I don't know how I could focus on the music with, with them in the room or on on the track. But I mean, that's just because the Beatles have meant so much to me. To my mom, to my to my daughter who listens to Abbey Road all the time, and, and it's just, I mean, it's. I, I always wonder what that's like to have to know that you've had that much of an influence on, on people, and that you've changed or touched people's lives in ways that is indescribable sometimes, and to just to know that you've done that. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah, it's. Uh... They've so much of the music we have today we wouldn't have if not for them. And it's, regardless of how you feel about their music, even if you're not a fan, you can't deny the impact they've had on the music that came after. And chances are, if even if you're not a fan of the Beatles or don't necessarily care for them, whatever band you are a fan of, 
they were influenced by the Beatles either directly or indirectly. It it goes back to them one way or another. I mean, it's they in in fairness to those that came before the Beatles, Beatles took the sound of America in the late fifties, the Eddie Cochran's and the Buddy Holly and the Richie Valens and the Big Bopper and that whole rock and roll thing. And that's how they, the Beatles took that, they perfected it and they took it to another level. And then they transitioned to something else completely. I mean, it was, I don't know what else to say about it. It's, and what they've done since uh, does bear some recognition and some listening. It's granted it, it's their solo careers. I think in some summary, the, their solo careers really show that they needed each other to make that magic as good as their soul. Some of their solo material is it'll never match what it was when they were playing together. It's it's the, the Beatles are the uh, ultimate example of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Oh yes, most definitely. And, and, bef- and before we like start to, start to wrap things up a little bit. I, I do want to go into, um, and I know, I know it's not on my, my printout, so I'm going to go a little rogue here, just a little bit. Um, I, I do want to talk about the, when they did the anthology um, back in the 90s. And, you know, they came out with uh, Free as a Bird and Real Love. And Real Love is a fantastic song to me. And absolutely, uh, I'm, (laughs) you know, free as the bird when you and I was watching that on PBS, the the anthology um, free of the free as a bird was the first one that came out and it was cool. Like I was like, all right, this is cool. And now I'm hearing George singing. I'm hearing Paul singing. I can tell, you know, George's slide guitar. I can hear the drums, you know, Ringo's drums and and making it, you know, a Beatles song based on. and, And if people don't know, the anthology tapes uh, or for real love and free as a bird were, um, they were recordings that John Lennon had had demos of him just sitting down at a piano singing, singing these songs, and they were turned over for by the by Yoko, I believe, to to them, saying like, hey, you know, see if you guys can try to do anything with this or whatever. They brought Jeff Lynne in, and Jeff Lynne had to go through tapes like on a cassette tape, which is what this came off of, and clean up the sound. And, you know, all the hiss and all the other stuff and make them into like recording quality or, you know, single quality recordings. And that's a tough thing to do. And, and they did it. And free as, so going back to that, free as a bird when it came out was, I was like, yeah, this is cool. And then real love came out. I think it was the next night. And I heard that and I was like, wow, okay. That may be one to me, one of John Lennon's best songs. And it was one that never even saw the light of day until they decided to put the Beatles together again for this anthology. And then you got this song out of it. And it's like, well, yes, that's that's the perfect ending to it, to me. Oh, absolutely. And I, I could, I'm not sure if it's the anthology or one of the other collections that has the Stu Sutcliffe uh, Love Me Tender by Elvis, but that is on Spotify and I, I did uh, put that on our playlist for this episode that uh, I put this because Stu Sutcliffe does not have any post-Beatles music I did put the ones, the one example of his music out there and it happens to be a cover uh, but 
that's the only way you'll ever hear Stu Sutcliffe. I think I, although I have heard there are some bootlegs out there that of the Cavern Club where you can hear Paul and Stu playing together and stuff like that. I haven't heard those. I mean, I'd love to just to get an idea of what that era of the Beatles sounded like and what the Beatles might have sounded like had they remained a quintet instead of becoming a quartet. Um, and I've not big on collecting Beatles bootlegs and whatnot, but if I ever were to get into that, I think that is the era I'd probably be focused on just because it's an early, early stage in their evolution. And just to hear the birth of something brilliant and beautiful and transformative, I, I just think it would be really cool. On our first episode, uh, you did mention my love of and interest in and the rabbit hole I fell down into with Australian and Kiwi music, so Oceana music. Um, That's my term, by I, the way. So, yeah. yeah, well, <laughs> it, it's a perfect term because it is considered Oceana. The Australia, New Zealand are Oceana, so it's a great term. Um, at any rate, that's a rabbit hole I fell into ages ago, like late nineties. Uh, and then, at any rate, I I dove deep there. I listened to a lot of pop music from Australia. Most people in this country have never heard of or only are peripherally familiar with. So, future we're going to start is if you like this, then you might also like this. And it's going to be focused on what we've just discussed, the Beatles. So if you like the Beatles, the Australian band to go to is the Easy Beats, which they were considered the Australian Beatles in many regards. Um, they were led by George Young, who is the older brother of Angus and Malcolm Young of ACDC. So quite a musical pedigree in that family, and that's something we're going to circle back around to um we're going to do an in the blood episode where we discuss musical pedigrees where whole families have this tremendous musical talent. But anyway, this would be one example of that George Young and easy beats and then Malcolm and Angus and ACDC, but the songs, um, the big hit they had outside of Australia that you may have heard is Friday on my mind. Uh, but they, uh, were also known there's a song called Good Times that was in the Lost Boys soundtrack covered by In Excess and Jimmy Barnes, who is an Australian icon. So those are both Easy Beats songs. Um, and another one I really like, it's called Sad and Lonely and Blue. And around the 2000 or so, mid-2000s, a bunch of Australian artists got together and did like a tribute album to the Easy Beats. And one of the songs that was covered was Sad and Lonely and Blue by... Eva Davies, who is the lead singer of Ice House, and his version is its going to circle back around to another topic we're going to get to is where the cover surpasses the original. His cover of that song just is ethereal. its It almost feels heavenly. Like I first time I heard that, his voice, would, I felt like I was floating because his voice was lifting me. And it, so if it's not on Spotify but I'll toss a link up to the YouTube clip. It's just a still photo with the music, with the audio, but it's well worth listening to. So I'm going to toss that up on the uh, Facebook page. And so with all this talk about the Beatles, if you want something like that from down under, Easy Beats are the first stop. I mean, that they they modeled themselves after the Beatles. They had a very similar sound. Um they weren't quite as inventive or transformative. 
they were what they were. They were more reminiscent of the early Beatles than the later Beatles. But if you like the Love Me Do, I Want to Hold Your Hand era of the Beatles, Easy Beats are going to scratch that itch for you. Well, now I know what I'm going to be listening to this weekend uh, now that I now that I've heard that. And actually, if you're listening to this, you probably listen to it when it comes out on Sunday or Monday. So I've already listened to it by then, and I think it's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> talking into the past me, um, to, from the future me, uh, but, or to the future me. I don't know. It's, there's a time paradox there that uh, is, is a different podcast. But uh, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And I think this is going to be a great segment, or a part of our, our, our show, is being able to to kind of turn people on to other things. Like, well, yeah, if you like this, you're, you're going to enjoy this. I mean, Amazon does that every time I I, I, I buy a song or I, I download a song. So why can't we do that um, in a way that is human? These are just things that, well, if you like this, other people bought this. We're talking about, look, I've listened to this, and I think that this is a good fit for you. Um, trying to keep the humanity in, in music, which is so difficult nowadays, but... Um, we're, we're going to do our best. Yeah. And when we get to some of the like new wave discussions, I've got a whole treasure trove that I think I can point you in the direction of that. I think you'll absolutely love. I have no doubt I, about I, that. <laughs> uh, when we get to like, uh, I, I would like, a, you're more familiar with joy division and new order than I am. I would let you lead that episode obviously, because you're far more familiar, but I've only re- only since like 2018 or so have I really started to delve into those two bands and the transformation after Ian Curtis commit suicide. And there's, I'd only ever heard uh, Love Will Tear Us Apart by uh, Joy Division b- before. And then I heard Atmosphere. And Atmosphere completely blew me away. If I had heard that first, I would have got, if I'd heard that before Love Will Tear Us Apart, I would have been a Joy Division fan much earlier because that song just blew me away. It's so fantastic. And this, of course, Bizarre Love Triangle by New Order is its probably one of my favorite songs of the 80s. It's just so catchy and fun. And Peter Hook's bass playing is just fantastic. So something I think that's a, something we should delve into in the future, definitely. And when we do that, I, I have a whole host of Aussie new new wave bands that i think you'd really dig and i'm going to have more than just one to recommend when we get to that those two bands yeah and i'm 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 looking forward to that um as well because you you send me like during the week i don't know people obviously don't know this but you send me a lot of links and things like that um, throughout the week sometimes i can't keep up on it i've kind of got a backlog on it but um it's always good stuff and I'm, so I'm looking forward to hearing some of that because I do like Joy Division. I do like New Order. I do like, you know, um, Spandau Ballet and Tears for Fears and um, OMD from that era. So I'm, you know, I'm always up for listening to new stuff, especially considering that they're not making any new stuff from the 80s, if that makes sense. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not talking about 80s bands making new music now. Nobody's making 80s music anymore because we're not in the 80s, right? So when I can find something that I've never heard before from that era, it's it's even more joyful to me, to be honest with you. Well, the one new wave band from Down Under you probably have heard of is Split Ends. I mean, I got you uh, six months in a leaky boat, and Tim Finn 
brought in his younger brother, Neil, and then Neil went on to form Crowded House and later brought Tim into that. Um, but we'll, we'll delve into them a little bit. And they, both of them have put out some interesting solo albums. Uh, Tim had a song I really dig. I can't remember the title of off the top of my head, but when, when we circle back around to some of this new wave stuff and split ends comes up, I'll probably remember it by then. And there's, there's some good stuff out there. The stuff, you know, by those guys. And then there's some deeper stuff that you might not be aware of. Yep. I think that's going to be a good show. I mean, there's so many good shows coming up and just recommend that everybody just sign up for the alerts so that they don't miss an episode when, oh, they, when they're, when they're released. And I'm trying to get the word out to some of my friends who aren't on Facebook. I toss the links out to them. So, um, I also, we also have a cloud drive where we're going to be storing the archives as we go. And so if for whatever reason you aren't able to get it from Rich's link, we will have a backup on the cloud drive and we can share that link with you. If you have technical difficulties, whatever, there are two, we're going to have two different ways to get it. Uh, some people have issues given the age of their computer, or whatnot. And the cloud is just a straight download of an MP3 file of the show. So it's, going to be pretty straightforward um but on that note our next episode is going to be our halloween episode because we'll probably be recording it the night before halloween um we're going to cover alan parsons projects tales of mystery and imagination a concept album based on the tales and poems of edgar Allan poe i i just found that to be a fitting topic going into halloween the following night and I'm going to have to go back and revisit some of the Edgar Allan Poe stories that inspired the music on there because it's been ages since I read Poe, but I do have his complete tales and poems, so I've, I've got the source material, so I've got my homework cut out for me this week. Well, I'm a big Poe fan, so I'm excited to talk about that and to listen to it again. And I think I may have listened to it quite a while back, but it's been... It's been a while, so I'm I'm excited just to take a listen to it. I'm excited to get kind of spooky all Halloween and have a great great episode. Yeah, uh, we'll touch on the bands that kind of made up the project because it was his brainchild, and even though these guys weren't members, they were creating the music. But they were bands that he had produced: Ambrosia, Pilot, guys from those bands ended up playing on the APP albums. They were contributors to the project, even if they were never really members of the band or the, the project, so to speak. Uh, but we'll, we'll touch on the musicians that came together to make that album happen and the, some of their other material as well. But the focus is definitely going to be on that particular concept album. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Yeah, I am as well. So uh, to close, just remember you can reach us at perpandrick at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. We're waffling on we may or may not do an Instagram. I don't know if it makes sense to. It's a possibility down the road. We're not in any rush to do that. But definitely have the Facebook presence. Definitely have the email address. So email us with suggestions, ideas, uh comments about the shows, uh, rebuttals, if you don't like something we said. Uh, we take criticism and acclaim and whatever you want to give us. Uh, feel free to just drop us an email or a comment on our Facebook page. And we, 
one of us will likely respond, if not both of us. Yeah, and when we'd love to hear your your input, um, things like you said about uh, future future episodes and anything that uh, you know maybe we got something wrong, and let us know, and we'll correct it. You know, we're we're humble like that. At least yeah. I like to think so. We'll we'll do the audio equivalent of printing retractions if it comes to that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, outstanding. So, outstanding. Yeah. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll catch you after Halloween. All right. Take care. And we'll, we'll hear you next time. We'll hear us next time. Exactly. <laughs> Bye. Bye.